Good morning. Gary has something to say to you this morning, but owing to the fact that he is esophagically challenged, he cannot say on that thing which he would otherwise say. He reached out to me on Thursday, said, have a sermon in in the till. And then Friday, he said something like, 90% you're on. And I said, brother, don't hold back the tithe. Just take the weekend and get some rest. And uh, So, we certainly want him to get better. Ironically, the title of his sermon was going to be Cutting the Coat and Not the Throat. You can't make this stuff up. You can't make this stuff up. Well, we're going to go to the, the Epistle of James the brother of our Lord Jesus this morning in the second chapter, verses 14 through 26, James chapter 2, 14, 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that uh, that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. title of our sermon this morning, Faith Works. So that can either be understood of one or two ways, and best for us all if it is understood both, is to have sort of an adjective describing a noun. So, works is the noun, faith is the adjective. What kind of works? Faith works. That describes the works. Or it could be looked at as a verb followed by a noun. I'm sorry, a noun followed by a verb. That's why I didn't teach homeschool. My wife did. Faith works. Faith does something. Probably the last thing on our minds this morning is spring. But in five very short months, it will be spring again. And many of us will be about planting and planting gardens and looking for their produce. Like some of you, I enjoy walking around the gardens looking for the growth and looking for those fresh veggies. But a garden in which nothing grows and which remains unattended can scarcely be called a garden. If you were to see our garden at our home right now, in the summer, the way that it looks now, right now, and with the look of winter death, you would certainly mumble to yourself, some garden. Some mulch and raised garden beds and fencing does not a garden make. James 
in this epistle has been taking the church on a spiritual tour through its own garden of faith. This is a letter that speaks directly to the question of the fruitfulness or lack thereof of our faith and to our progress in sanctification or as I like to call it, sanctification, which is the process of becoming more and more of a saint in Christ, becoming the saints that we are. It's regrettable that in the Roman Catholic Church they have an entirely separate sort of class of people known as saints that are only made saints through a process that is completely foreign to the scripture. And so it just adds, as sadly much of Roman Catholicism does, layer upon layer upon layer. So it's harder and harder to get to Jesus. But scripture clearly describes each and every one of us as a saint if we're in Christ. Touring the spiritual garden, James has identified at least 14 seed-bearing gospel plants that the church should reasonably expect to see sprouting. And may the Holy Spirit grant us honest self-evaluation, as I mentioned these briefly. One, do you consider it all joy when you encounter various trials that suddenly come upon you? Do you let endurance produce its intended work of completion? In other words, do you persevere? Do you seek wisdom in trials when it is lacking? That is, do you ask God for it? Do you doubt God's goodness? If you're financially well off, do you consider Christ to be your true riches? Or, if you're not well off financially, even struggling greatly, do you glory in the riches of Christ? Do you admit that your temptations to sin come first and foremost from your own evil lusts? Do you acknowledge your new birth is the work of God and not yourself? I have to think this is one of the most difficult, as I've seen among the brethren and sister in my day, and as I struggle with it myself, are we swift to hear, slow to anger, and slow to speak? Slow to anger and slow to speak, just ready to listen. Man, that is a tough one. I know it because I see it in a lot of people in the body. That's a tough one. It's a tough one. Are you striving against sin, desiring to put aside all filthiness and all that remains of the wickedness and keep yourself unspotted from the world? Are you a doer of the word, not merely one that reads and hears it to no effect? Do you bridle your tongue or try to? This is a tough one for anybody with a strong opinion. It's tough not saying something sometimes. Man, do you just hold that thing? Do you care for those in distress? Do you have an attitude of personal favoritism in the church, preferring some based on riches or fame or popularity? Are you merciful? Are you merciful? Can you overlook a transgression or do you hold on to that thing? Scripture says there's a glory for a man or woman to overlook a transgression. This is another tough one. 
But seeing these things James has said about the Christian life of faith in so many words, we have context to consider what many have unnecessarily, I would say, concluded to be a real problem in Scripture. And that is James' discussion of faith works in his use of the term justification. By now, the Scripture, as we have it here in James, has convincingly demonstrated that James believes in salvation by grace alone through faith alone. We see that in James chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where we read, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. The word of truth is the gospel. It's a response of faith and belief and trust that takes place. And the believer is considered justified at that moment, receiving the righteous standing of Christ. The situation has been remedied through Christ, crucified and risen from the dead. What situation? Situation that you were born into. You and I were born, as one to put it, into a covenant with the very enemy of God. And Jesus remedies that situation, reconciling us to God through Himself. Like Paul, James acknowledges that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And I mention Paul because the two have been set against one another in some ways to argue that they contradict one another. In fact, Luther said that James' epistle was a right strawy epistle. An epistle of straw. Luther said a lot of nutty things. Also, James tells the church that they've received mercy. So James' discussion about works and fruit come after believing the gospel of Jesus, not before. Everything that follows, all of these things I've alluded to, come before. We reasonably conclude, therefore, that James understands faith, not works, to be the means of receiving the atoning grace of the Lord Jesus for salvation. So the next question that James asks is quite strategically placed in the flow of his discussion. Only with all that he has written so far can he ask the kind of question that provides its own answer within the question. We call this a rhetorical question. It's a question we do just for rhetoric or rhetorical effect. It's kind of like maybe a parent would say to their kid going outside without a coat, do you want to get frostbite? Well, the answer is sort of bound up in the question, right? Or, would you like to lose the car for a week? There are questions we can ask that really don't require an answer. The question itself is designed to just remind us of the answer. And so based on all that he has said thus far, if we were to read this epistle, the answer is self-evident. And the question is found in verse 14. The question is, what use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? And there was only one answer, and that is, based on what you've said thus far, James, the obvious answer is, no, it cannot save him. And the statement from that man that he has faith is useless. It has no value at all. And James then gives an example of what that person would do if he encountered someone naked and hungry. In verse 16, where he says, one of you says to them, uh, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed or naked and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them things that are needed for the body, what good is that? 
If you were hungry and naked, would someone's well-wishing that you be warm and filled give you comfort? If that person gave you nothing? The saying of the man means nothing. It does not put clothes on the person, and it does not relieve their hunger. There's no love in it at all. It's just an empty shell of pretentious piety. And this is, in this example, I really find the grace of God. He is gracious to us, is he not? And he knows our sensitivity and our concern whether or not our ways are pleasing to him at times. He knows that deep sensitivity that we have. Because those that are Christ, they do desire to serve God. We talked about service downstairs quite a bit this morning. Even so, the, the accuser of the brethren often whispers to us about our shortcomings or we get too hung up on them and our failures or seeking to upset us and distract us and perhaps make us into legalists. Perhaps make us focus on our sin instead of the fact that we're children of God. So here in this letter from James, God gives us such an extremely simple example of what genuine faith should produce at a minimum. Right? Even the youngest and the least mature believers can grasp his force. He could have given some other scenario that might remind us of some time that we fell short in our ignorance due to our infancy in Christ or due to some struggle we're having. Imagine if it said, you know, husband, you snapped at your wife. Can that kind of faith save you? Or if it said, you know, wives, you know, you disrespected your husbands. Can that kind of faith save you? Or, gee, I was a a drug addict, an alcoholic, addicted to, sex, to, to pornography, and I was things were great for ten years, and then I fell back into it. I fell. Imagine if the scripture said, "Can that kind of faith save you?" Boy, people would be in a real bad place, wouldn't they? And of course, that's not to make light of those things, right? Do I really need to say that? But no. Instead, what we get here from the Spirit is, is an example of a person coming to us destitute naked and clearly starved. This isn't such a difficult challenge to ask. This is a fairly easy one. We can easily imagine a frail, malnourished, naked person in our mind. What a pathetic sight. Who among even the newest of faith would not cover the person's nakedness and give him something to eat? And really, this is the same example that our Lord Jesus used in Matthew 25. When he spoke about clothing my brother, visiting him in prison, saying that you did it to me, and the people saying, what do you mean we, we did it to you? Or contrary, saying, what do you mean we didn't visit you? And Jesus said, as much as you did it to one of these, my brothers, or didn't do it to one of these, my brothers, you did it to me, or did not do it. So it's a very simple example, a very simple sort of understanding. And James rightly says that the kind of professed faith that lets a brother walk away in such a state is a non-breathing, no-pulse, entirely dead kind of faith. And how can death give life? And it cannot. And, and remember that these people to whom James is writing, the majority of them are not well off financially. These are poor people. Many are enduring hardship of their own. But the verse here doesn't seem to discriminate about financial well-being of the one that comes, uh, to whom the one comes that's naked and hungry. It doesn't say if you're really well off or you're not really well off yourself. Those that are the Lord's, this is a difficult thing for us sometimes, perhaps. Those that are the Lord's need not fear that if they give to another, they will have nothing left for themselves. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus. To seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. 
Concern over our own future lack should not take precedent over the immediate need like the one we see here before us. Believe it or not, there are some people worse off than you or I in any given situation. Throughout God's Word, we see God's people giving and caring for others. We see the faith of God's people in Scripture. In the book of Acts, in chapter 2, you have this community of faithful, exercising, great faith Christians there, giving freely to others for the needs of all. And it's as if everything belonged to the Lord, and they saw themselves as stewards of it. Now we have to assume that people didn't sell the only house that they had, or else there'd be no houses to meet in. But many sold parts of their homes, parts of their land, to benefit the needy. There was a need people gave. Again, in Acts chapter 4, we see a similar dynamic taking place. We see repeated that same love for one another that we just saw in chapter 2. The disciples were of one heart and one soul. They had a common faith and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. They had an increasing awareness that what they had been raised and taught about the Messiah, coming Messiah was taking place. The kingdom of God was among men, so they were moved by the kingdom of love. For God first and then neighbor self. See the, the, and again, the point is not that everyone sold everything and lived in some commune, but as need arise, did arise, then it was, that need was, was met. Over in the Macedonian church, you recall, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, that the grace of God was given to the Macedonians. How do we know the grace of God was given? How do we know that they had faith? Well, they had a work. They gave evidence to it. They had a greater deal of affliction. They were deep in poverty. We preached on this a little bit back on finances and and, uh, stewardship of money. Yet they had a great abundance of joy. Joy produced by the Holy Spirit. And so they gave beyond their ability for the needy saints of Jerusalem. And not under any compulsion. Well, how could they do this? By the grace of God, they had faith. They gave themselves first to the Lord then to men by the will of God. It's the age-old pattern of God's people. To love God with a heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then the royal law of loving neighbor as self, which is born of that love and of that faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 goes on, but we see the, God, the heartbeat of God in His people taking care of one another. We go back to James and we see that we're dealing with the same exact issue. James, though, had to address some obvious inconsistency with professions of faith that were meaningless. That lacked evidence of genuine faith possessed in the soul. His hearers needed to be admonished and challenged. And so, James uses another hypothetical argument here in verse 18, which is wordy a little bit. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And different translations do different things with that. A paraphrase, Eugene Patterson's The Message, does a pretty nice job. Remember, though, in paraphrases, the translators typically go well beyond um, the original text that's there, and they sort of almost give a little commentary. But he said, whoa, not so fast. You can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, work and faith, fit together like a glove. And that's James' message here. And it was Paul's message. And it was the message of the Lord Jesus also. See, James is a very good teacher. 
He stated the truth about faith and works, and he's given an illustration to sort of make it obvious. And he's asked the question after building an understanding in the minds and hearts of his hearers of what the gospel is. So now James is going to do what's so important uh, when we're going to read New Testament letters. So important to understand that the New Testament writers are writing deeply, uh, their, their minds, their hearts, their, their theology deeply embedded in Old Testament theology. Uh, for some of you out there, this won't be meaningful. For others, it will. But again, in the Greco-Roman world, there are those that think that Paul and others changed, sort of, spoke in terms of just the culture around them. They didn't. They brought the Old Testament culture into it with them. When they went into the <coughs> Greco-Roman world, they went first into the synagogues and taught the Jews what was true. <coughs> and that's important because, because we... We, we want to contextualize the gospel for our culture, but we don't want to over-contextualize the gospel. We can turn it into something that is not because we're either nervous about presenting it as it is or we think somehow we've got all the sort of task of doing this work alone and the Spirit's not at work. So James is going to come at them from the perspective of their Jewish heritage and theology. and He's, he's going to bring in both of those from the Torah from the first five books of Moses, and particularly Genesis and Deuteronomy. He says, this is nothing different than what you've received and heard and claimed to understand and is part of your faith. And so he hearkens back to the ancient Hebrew Shema of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And often the first portion of Scripture that the Jewish child would learn. They would learn that the way many of our young would learn, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Now, that's sort of their John 3.16. And it's called the Shema because Shema means hero Israel. So let's call it the Shema. But hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is a statement that speaks of the uniqueness of God above all other gods, sovereign without comparison. And James makes the point in verse 19 that you believe that God is one. Or you believe that part of the Torah, right, that is of first importance. Well, good for you. He says almost sarcastically, when we were kids, he said, big whoop. Right? The demons also believe. The demons know quite well what the Shema is. In fact, the demons are a very orthodox bunch when it comes to belief. Not so much, of course, when it comes to faith and practice, for they hate God and they hate His people, but they know the truths of Scripture. They are well versed in it. Satan himself tried to use Scripture when he tempted the Lord Jesus in the wilderness. That didn't end well. But his schemes and the schemes of his demons, <clears throat> in order to succeed, they, they have to be very... They have PhDs in theology. There's not a demon out there that doesn't know theology as good as anybody in here. Better. That's how they can pervert. That's why it's important to know doctrine. They can pervert what you don't know by presenting... The words that perhaps you ought to know, but may not know yet, they can easily pervert it, and that happens quite a bit. Doctrine is everything when it comes to these things. So the, but the demons, they know enough what they know. All that they know, they shudder. They have a right response to the truth of God in one sense. They know what awaits them. See, and they hate God, and they also fear Him. Uh, 
in Matthew chapter 8 verses 28 through 29 and when Jesus came to the other side to the country of the Gadarenes two demon possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce no one could pass that way and behold they cried out what have you to do with us O son of God have you come to torment us before the time they know they're going to be tormented they know the truth about God and they act in a manner consistent with that belief when they shudder Mark 1, 21-24 And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. <clears throat> Excuse me. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demons had good theology and they had works consistent with their theology. The response from the demons that they gave is just what we would expect from the kind of belief that demons had. They believe that their end is inevitable and awful and so they should shudder. Well then, what should we expect of those who have a right belief and faith in God and not merely a profession? James says, foolish fellow who thinks faith and works can exist apart from one another. Will you acknowledge that faith without works is dead, having heard and been instructed? Will your response to the truth of God look like it should? Shuddering is to demon faith as blank is to Christian faith. And the blank there, if you're paying attention, is works. Shuddering is to demon faith what good works is to the Christian faith. And Jesus uses the example that they know full well. And that's Abraham. And he asks another rhetorical question. One they know the answer to already. He says, Was not Abraham justified by works? Well, this is where Roman Catholics and Protestants start to tear it up and get entangled. And again, unnecessarily so. But I want you to be equipped as well to understand why that argument and that position is taken and why it makes all the difference in the world when it comes to the gospel. Was not Abraham justified by works when he obeyed God's instruction to slay Isaac? James continues by restating that relationship of faith and works, their inseparability. To be justified is to be declared righteous. It, it does not mean that one is morally pure in, in him or herself or without sin as if they had met all the conditions of God's law. In its most general sense, in the New Testament, it means the law is no longer held against the person to keep that person separate from God. The condition of the law has been satisfied. It's, a, it, it's to be a member of the covenant. It's to be in right relationship with God. It's to be a partaker of the covenant. We are in Christ, one of Paul's favorite sayings, and have a righteousness of Christ, the Scripture says. His righteousness is imputed or given to us credited towards us. He's our substitute in his life atoning death and all his benefits. What a sermon that would be. What are the benefits that Christ has? You've got to study Christ. If we study Christ and think about him, it, 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 it will change everything. It changes everything. Was not Abraham declared to be righteous by that action? Yes, he was. By that action, it could be said he is in covenant relationship with God. He is righteous. He was because that act came from faith. 
or trust. Trust is a good word for faith. Believing loyalty is another good word. By that act, others saw his justification. Others saw the reality of his faith that was only immediately known to God. See, James says that in verse 23. He says, the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. That's another great title for a believer. I'm a friend of God. So the scripture was fulfilled. What does that mean? Well, that statement in verse 23 refers to the time in Abraham's life when he first believed the word of God to him that I will make you a father of many nations. And that was about 30 years before the time that Abraham brought Isaac up to the mount to sacrifice him, if my Bible math is right. Given the time that passed after the promise was received, the time that he had Ishmael, to the time he had Isaac, to the time Isaac was old enough to take up. So when James says the scripture was fulfilled and that Abraham's faith was perfected or made complete, he's referring to the same thing. Abraham proved to be a friend of God by acting on his faith and demonstrated the truth of scripture that he was righteous by his faith. So we can spell it out plainly like, plainly like this. We have every good reason to say that Abraham was justified by the kind of faith which is evidenced by works. Seeing Abraham's work, we are justified in saying Abraham was justified by faith. We have a good reason. We, are just, we have a good reason to say that Abraham was justified by faith. Remember also that Abraham had been told by God that this is Abraham's uh, if you were in the study downstairs in Romans a few weeks ago we talked about the resurrection and how those that have faith in the resurrection are like Abraham here. This is the example. Remember all because if we believe in the power of God to resurrect if we believe in the power of God to bring us to life again if we believe that we've been buried if we've been baptized into Christ's death, in other words, not just going in the water, but what that represents, that we have been literally immersed in the death of Christ, that His death is our death. And that happened on the cross. We were baptized into His death at the cross. What we did years later in waters testifies to that. So, remember that He told me that, that through... That through Isaac, not Ishmael, who was his firstborn with Hagar, through, through uh, Isaac, his seed would be blessed and multiplied. And that he would be uh, the spiritual and physical father of many nations. So when God told Abraham to offer up his son, Abraham didn't say, uh, you know, I guess it will just have to happen through Ishmael. Abraham thought to himself, okay, God told me that through Isaac, he's going to bring about his promises. So if I slay Isaac, he's going to have to bring him back from the dead. He's still going to use him. He told me he's going to use him. Now, what else could seem more... What else could be... What a great challenge to Abraham's faith. But think of the great challenges to our faith. Right? And we, get, we typically associate them with trials. Right? And, and tests, rightly so. This is a mag- The test comes at the very point of the promise. Don't be surprised to be tested at the very point of the promise. Because the promise has already been demonstrated to have been fulfilled. So, and really this is, what we, this is actually what we read in Hebrews 11, 7-19. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises, didn't just hear them, he received them. When you receive the promises of God, you don't just hear them. They become part of who you are. It was in the act of offering up his only son, 
of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Listen now, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now back in Romans, earlier in the earlier chapters, forget exactly where it was, that very thing is alluded to, as I'll promise as well. So what things in life, I think, that can motivate us. See, the things that prevent us from good works, the things that prevent us, the things that hold down our faith, come from a lack probably of time and energy and, and, and uh, intentionality put into understanding what exactly it is that God has accomplished in Christ. It's outrageous. I mean, so much so that they mock us for it. We get, I hope you know, I think you know, you know, this is outrageous. I mean, the title of this sermon could have been has Christmas made a difference? <laughs> or it could maybe have been re-gifting the gift. Right? Because it's a great joy for us to share the gift of our reconciliation to God. We, we share the fruit of our reconciliation with God. We, we have nothing at all that should prevent us from that joyous life that we talk about all the time. If we really meditate on and understand the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ... To, to vividly again imagine, and I'll, I'll always try to encourage me to do this and you too, to vividly imagine in those hardest of times, Jesus Christ physically going through what he went through, spiritually going through what he went through, and then that he was raised from the dead again three days later. That he is alive. So, so that, and all the other facts of reality. The gospel, as one, one book writer put it, the gospel is the story of reality. This is reality, and the reason why we lack faith sometimes is because we get caught up in that which is not reality. Or, we want to create a reality for ourselves. We want to create, we want things to be a certain way. That's why we get so frustrated and impatient, I think. I had, an, I had a gift this week, about, thinking about impatience, because it's something that, after all, years and years, I can still struggle with. And I thought to myself, why does that happen? And as I was talking with myself and discussing things back and forth with my soul and my soul was telling me to forget about it and I was telling my soul to shut up and listen, that this is definitely true for men. I'm not sure about women. Our impatience sometimes becomes a sense of power in us that we can make plan B happen when plan A isn't happening, which is our plan too, right? So we want to make it happen and we become impatient with others, we become impatient with circumstances because they're not yielding to the force of what we have. And so I was behind a vehicle. There was traffic that was stuck and I said, ah, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to go this other way and I'm going to get behind. And I got behind a wheelchair van. And it slowed me down way more than would have happened. And I started thinking to myself, all right, as soon as I get on a straightaway, I don't care if there's no passing or not, I'm getting around this guy. I'm doing all this stuff in my head. I'm like planning out my future and then something comes along and interferes with my future. And so I said, Pat, somehow you've thought of your impatience almost as a source of strength. But if I acknowledge it as a weakness before God and say, God, because God has said, He has said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And I had a fresh blast of hope like somebody turned something on that came and said, Patrick, your, your impatience is a weakness. Guess what? You're, that's right where you want to be. That's right where you want to be. So there are, th- and I say all that to say, and I hadn't planned on saying it, that there are things in our lives that interfere with works that would otherwise proceed from a good, robust, healthy faith. And that is because we suddenly shift from faith in God and faith in His provision, faith in His goodness, and 
to something else. It's always something else. It's always something else. Talked about that downstairs too, you know, two things. So again, for the eighth time, James restates the truth about faith and works. The nature of redemptive faith is that it expresses itself in works or love towards God and neighbor as self. I read a tweet this morning by G.K. Chesterton. He's a long dead uh, Roman Catholic uh, <coughs> theologian and, and very interesting philosopher. He said something to the effect, the Bible tells us to love our neighbor. It also tells us to love our enemy. That's a, he said, it's because generally speaking, they're the same. <laughs> right? Our neighbor is our enemy. Saving faith loves. Right? Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. We know that, you know, <clears throat> that what we have, the salvation is the gift of God. It, it doesn't come through works. Right? It, it, it's a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. And we have it. Why? So that we can do the good works that God ordained beforehand that we should walk in. That's, eight, that's Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Saved by grace. Why? So that you can walk in these good works. And that's why we, it, it's not with grumbling and complaining. That's why it's exciting, you know? And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And that's not like, you know what? If you really love me, you'll do what I say. Right? Or, you know, Jesus guilting people. Boy, you, you know, Jesus doesn't guilt people that way. It does not say that keeping his commandments causes our love towards Christ, but that love for Jesus is expressed through deliberate discipleship to him. It's expressed through keeping his commands, and his command is to love and, and to believe. And we can only carry out his instructions and teachings as we love him. If we don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't love the Lord Jesus, you eventually will get sick of serving him. We'll get sick of serving him because we by nature serve what we love if we don't love the Lord. And so, if we find ourselves not serving well or we're struggling about that, it's okay to ask ourselves, am I not loving? And if I'm not loving, it's because I haven't put myself under the doctrine of God's love and just let myself be drenched in it so that it can then pour out of me into others again. And that's what this instruction is for. That's what preaching and teaching is for, fellowship of the saints. 1 John 5, 1-3, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves my Father, loves the Father, loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And circumcision and uncircumcision were, of course, the great dividing line. Even in, even in the Roman church and other places, it was, yeah, yeah, we're Christians, we're Jewish, <clears throat> you're Gentile, we're both Christians, but if you really want to be, you've got to become a Jew first to be a better Christian. Therefore, you've got to be circumcised. And other messages that are similar, you've got to do this first, you've got to do that first. <clears throat> no. In the history of the Jewish people, as we continue with such that James had a bounty of examples of justified people that he might have used to build his case further for faith and works. Elijah comes to mind, right? Standing firm against 450 prophets of Baal or David going up against Goliath. <clears throat> Excuse me. Gideon facing a tremendous army. Caleb in his old age saying, give me that hill, right? We'll take this land. Or perhaps Esther risking her neck to go before the king for her people. James chooses a harlot named Rahab. How kind of God. How kind of God. 
to put people in the history of Christ and redemption that we could easily relate to or, or makes it easy enough for understand. You know? Rahab knew some truths about God. She said to them, we've heard about this God. We, we heard what He did to the Egyptians. We, we heard what happened to the kings. We heard these things. Rahab was already familiar with God when Joshua showed up, Caleb, when the two spies showed up. She knew that He was the Lord God of heaven and earth. So this harlot had in her the seed of faith in the one God. She feared and trembled, but her response was to act in faith. That's why James brings her up here. This previously immoral woman that acted, you know, profited from sexual immorality with men, well, now she risked her life in hiding them. Why? Because she knew what was going to happen. She knew what was coming next. And she knew that God was capable of doing exactly what He said He was going to do. Knowing what she knew about God, she acted in faith. Not blind faith, but faith established on very powerful evidence. Don't ever be mistaken that your faith is somehow just something you've got to conjure up. You've just got to believe more. just got to believe more. just got to believe more. No. There's a lot of evidence to help buttress your faith and strengthen it and remove doubt. Whether it's intellectual doubt or emotional doubt or spiritual doubt, I will help you. Others will help you. If you have doubts, doubts can be great things. Doubts can be great things. So, Rahab becomes listed in the genealogy of Jesus. She wasn't the only harlot in his genealogy. So, James concludes in a vivid way. Most of us have seen a corpse. Right? The body without the spirit. It looks creepy, no matter what nice things we say about the undertaker's craft. And we spend a fortune and do all kinds of things to fool ourselves that we're not walking into the very presence of death. We deny it, even when it's right there in front of us. But we know what a corpse looks like. It can't be mistaken for anything else. When my son Michael, at age five, saw my grandmother at the time laying in a coffin, he said, I don't like seeing Graham in that box. It wasn't the box that gave him the jitters. It was the corpse. Faith with no works of love is dead. It cannot and should not be mistaken for real faith. And it can be very apparent. Faith without works looks every bit as dead as that corpse. It will be obvious, and this is to our benefit too, so that we don't deceive ourselves by a profession that has no desire to love God and our fellows, and no desire to sacrifice or forgive or to reach out to those in need, just a life that's completely self-absorbed. Now, let's examine ourselves in the light of what James has said. Let Scripture inform conscience and spiritual understanding lead you in this. If we would know the fullness of joy in the Lord, brothers and sisters, we must at times look to our profession and see whether our deeds agree with that profession. We shall find one of three things. And I remind you in the Lord that this applies at all times of your life, whether you have much or little, whether you're in need or full, whether in difficult trial or in peace. For once again, this letter began with an admonition to count it all joy when you fall into various trials. So God, the God of the mountain is the God of the valley, right? So we know the gospel. What's its effects on you? And when you examine, you'll find one of the following here as we sum up. One, you shall see that despite your frailty, Christ indeed is in you and you are bringing forth fruit. Works worthy of your calling and election. You despise your sin 
in this area or that area, but you're working it out. You pray for greater faith. You long to do good to others. You thank God. You thank God for it, knowing that it's Him who's working in you to do what pleases Him. Christ is lovely to you, or you're the second person. You've seen that your life is not in keeping with your profession. You see that you've been living one altogether selfish life. You believe there is only one God, but you have little love for God or neighbor at all. You are consumed with only your own existence, and you sense the call of God, who is in His goodness summoning you even now to salvation and to rescue. His goodness is leading you to repentance. If so, humbly submit to God and ask His forgiveness, and that Christ may dwell in your heart by faith. And then last, you have no desire so much as to even consider the question this morning. You have no regard for either the faith of those that sit among you, nor consider them a neighbor to be loved. Your heart is yet stone. May God the Holy Spirit subdue you this very day. May He by His grace conquer your will, change your affections, and deliver you from the kingdom of darkness before you die. It may be that this day or night, your life will be required of you. And Father, for those in such a state, they are in your hands. And for those that are in you, they are in your hands. All things are in your hands. Christ is becoming all things to us, Lord. We are excited about you. We're excited about him. We're excited that the Holy Spirit is exciting us. We celebrate this particular season with real, genuine joy, knowing the depth and riches of it. And pray that it would become additionally meaningful to all those that we would encounter and be meaningful towards. We thank you for the for the works of faith that produce themselves in glorious worship and gospel music and singing and prayers and fellowship and big deeds and little deeds. You are summoning your church, O oh God, this morning as you always do. Be joyous partakers of the gospel and to be wonderful smelling fruit bearers that work wonderful things that we could never have imagined in our past. And we give you all the thanks for it. We love you and one another. For Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Amen.